context, the political context in which something like concern with the 1% emerges, the fact that you can, through creation of an index number or, or a, like, the, uh, uh, like the genie, create a very simple and very easily compared sort of distillation of an argument about inequality. Yes, behind it, there's perhaps a more complex uh, argument, but it's that trade-off that Mary Morgan also talks about between the sort of the power of simple numbers that abstract something, make it very visible, but of course, in doing so, also hide a lot of what's behind. I remember walking through the occupied campsite just outside St Paul's Church in London back in 2011. Here was a backlash at the inequalities exemplified, especially by the extremely wealthy banking sectors, where the tents were now firmly pitched in London and New York and in many, many other cities across the world. We weren't there to bring a solution. We were there to announce that the problem had grown too big to ignore any further. I mean, when you think about, we, we bailed out the banks, at what point did we bail out the planet, bail out the people, bail out education, bail out healthcare? But no, no, we'll bail out the banks and, and hope for a trickle down. The Occupy movement, as I'm sure most of you are familiar with, was, for me at least, a sign that caring about inequalities and the injustices that inequality produces had become more legitimate. But concerns with inequality have been voiced throughout history, and that history is riddled with complicated stories tied to different spaces and times. It wasn't quite as simple as, as the Occupy movement had suggested, but I think it, it certainly resonated with the deeper and more justified concerns. In this two-part episode, we will be talking about moments during that history. In this first part, we explore different ways people have thought about inequality and how it is measured, and the possible impact that this thinking and measurement has on our economies and policies. In the second part, we look at how and why inequality goes up and down depending on where you look. Researchers looking at these questions thus urge people to look more on the micro-level, the regional level, the local level, because the trends and causes are not universal across time and space. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Before we delve into inequality, though, I would like to welcome you all back to our little piece of the podcast hemisphere. We have been gone a while, 18 months to be exact, the birth of my second boy and what you could refer to as another kind of birth, finishing a first version of my book manuscript, took priority. But I am back and I have so many exciting conversations to share with you. So here goes. So the thing about the Occupy movement was that it came after a period of time when people, a lot of people, thought that inequality was normal, but would eventually decline, all by itself. The famous trickle-down effect. There was an assumption that, um, you know, that the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, yeah, There was exactly, an assumption yeah. that, you know, growth was sufficient, both domestically and sort of globally. 
This is Dan Hirschman, a professor of sociology at Cornell University. And what's funny about that one to me is um, it was sort of true for like 30 or 40 years. Like if you look at the data, um, which is the data they had available in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, uh, as GDP rose in someone like the U.S., you know, incomes rose across all the levels. Um, that was, of course, like a historical quirk, not like a law of capitalism, but it was sort of treated as such, right? It was like, oh, okay, you know, for various theoretical reasons, we can imagine um, as productivity goes up, wages go up, overall economic activity goes up, those things are all tightly linked. Um, and that turned out to be kind of, you know, a true fact about a period of relatively high unionization and relatively high state regulation and all those other things that breaks down in the 80s. Um, but I think that still sort of that assumption guided a lot of work for a long time that we could ignore inequality because either it's functional or because it's going to reduce itself on its own or because, you know, no matter what the bottom's going up as long as we're all growing. And that wasn't always wrong, but it has been wrong for a while now, um, at least in some places. <laughs> One of the great, great legacies uh, also coming out of, of the West and that we can see um, after World War II is, is, is this idea of some different ideas within modernization and development theory. And this idea that countries are on different stages of development and some, and that can kind of combine with neoclassical trade theory is saying that somewhere out there in the horizon all countries will become more equal all we need to do is unleash uh, free market forces across the world and then at some point in the future they will become more equal i think maybe that's been a bit overlooked but i think there's a certain sense of time actually built into the ways in which inequalities are justified, where one of the ways in which inequalities between countries were justified at that time was to say, well, it's just a matter of time, then we will become more equal. So that's kind of the promise of a more equal future. My name is Christian Olaf Christiansen, and I'm an associate professor at Aarhus University at the History of Ideas. We'll hear more from Dan and Christian later. For now, we want to stay in this period in the early 2010s when the Occupy movement first hit the streets of New York and London. Here was a backlash against the theory of trickle-down and the theory of stages that assumed that all countries would eventually become more equal. There is something about the kind of, you know, 2000s and afterwards where this has become much more important, both in terms of mainstream political discourse and to, it, and it has really captured the attention of the discipline of economics um, in North America and in Europe much more so than ever before. This is Nima Paidapadi, who joined me with her colleague Pedro Ramos Pinto. I'm Dr. Nima Paidapadi. I'm a lecturer in comparative political economy in King's College, London. And I'm Pedro Ramos Pinto. I'm Associate Professor of International Economic History at the University of Cambridge. And I've had the pleasure of being working with Nima for quite a few years now uh, on various issues around inequality and the history of measurement of inequality. And one of the things that I find really interesting, um, really as somebody who um, locates myself partly in the history of science, is that it's very easy for historians of science and of um, social policy to imagine that a lot of these changes come from high-level experts, that they come from 
um, that they come from scientists and technocrats um, that, and, you know, some of that is true that we now have new ways of, say, measuring the 1%, which, you know, as Pedro was saying, that earlier we looked much more at kind of different sectors of the economy rather than individual shares of GDP. Um, and so there are new ways of parsing tax data and coming up with, you know, an actual accounting for what the 1% are commanding in both national economies and the global um, economy. But those techniques have been around for a while, right? Well before the 2000s. So why does this rise to the prominence it does? And this is something that I've really learned from Pedro's work, which is that, you know, you really have to look to political movements um, to, you know, and, and popular discourse to movements like the Occupy movement, where, you know, the we are the 99% um, in opposition to the 1% really is the moment when this kind of captures the the political imagination. And it is in that context, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and the political mobilization um, in its aftermath that we see the, you know, the, the significance of a book like Piketty's. Like I think it falls into that moment, into that context, which has really been primed by, you know, a, a rising political consciousness. And so, it's, I think it's really important for us as historians of science and social policy to look at the, you know, the pushes and pulls of politics, of public discourse, of political movements and mobilizations, and not just to you know, um, kind of expert debates or high level debates. It's re there's really an interaction between all of these things. We will complicate this discussion when we talk about the measurement of inequality a bit later. Just note for now that there is something going on in the beginning of the 21st century that pushes inequality to the fore, which makes books like Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century such a success. The social and political consciousness was primed to talk about inequality. However, we shouldn't make too much of this supposed juncture. Here's Christian again. Since 2019, I've, I've been um, the principal investigator of a project called um, A Global Intellectual History of Global Inequality, about 1960 to 2015. And um, it's a project involving me, a PhD, and two postdocs. And we've been trying to figure out how people have thought about living in an unequal world in different parts of the world. It's an intellectual uh, historical project. So we're interested in, in, in the history of thought. And it's mainly centered on four different cases or regions. Uh, one is India, one is Ghana, one is Argentina, and a fourth is, is more broadly the West, to some extent, the UN. So we've been trying to figure out how are people in these different places? When I say people, I'm you know mean, mainly talking about different intellectuals, some of them economists also. How are they thinking about living in an unequal world um, and, and how did their thought develop over time? From my perspective, coming you know, from intellectual history, working with different people across the, the world uh, in this time period, being concerned with inequality, um, I think I think, to some degree, I would say it's 
it's it's misleading or misguided even to think you know that inequality was simply just off the table for a long time but i can see you know why you would think it's been off the table and and kind of if we start with that and we look you know at economics uh, first and foremost and you have again like people some some people like Piketty uh writing in capital in the 21st century you know he's he's writing about how economic economics has has left out inequality for a very long time you know if you go back to some of the early writings by Gunnar Myrdal the Swedish economist he's also writing about how inequality needs to come back um there was a famous um um article um and i think a speech also by by anthony atkinson at some point where he where he did a study within economics and tried to show what you know tried to show how marginal um inequality was as a theme within economics uh, so so i think this seems to be some some good suggestions some good evidence showing you know that inequality has not been this big theme in economics uh, there's been some pretty good explanations i can think of you know the work of uh, philip lipinese for example who's written some great stuff about how inequality at an earlier stage was a central theme but then he says it, it was sidelined by gdp as the kind of best measure measure of of uh, of of, uh, of economic uh, well-being if you will uh, from the mid 20th century um other scholars like Eli Cook has you know written about how especially neoclassical economics had a lot of you know troubles engaging with inequality so from that perspective yeah you can you can talk about the neglect of 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 inequality within economics but then i think I think there's also some um, some evidence to the contrary. Also within economics, within the World Bank, um, I've seen you know lots of different um, work by economists in the seventies, uh, books by the then President McNamara, where he's talking about how social equality is is absolutely necessary and uh, important, uh, and it's not something which will just kill uh, economic growth that you do have some measures of focusing upon social equality and that's coming from you know from the world bank as thomas piketty and others have shown um kustnitz actually didn't himself want to to generalize on the basis of his data which was you know based on the us at a certain period of time Christian is referring to the famous inverted U hypothesis by Simon Kuznets that plotted inequality on the y-axis and GDP per capita on the x-axis. The hypothesis was and is often used to argue that inequality, like we heard before, is inevitable at the beginning stages of development, eventually hitting a peak and then decreasing. And Kuznets was was later kind of one of the influential uh, figures in and how how the world bank actually started thinking way more about inequality in the 60s 70s than we usually think if we look broader into development economics and if we look at you know key development economists like prebish murdel uh, barbara watt lots of other people i think were very strongly concerned with inequality from and i'm talking about the 50s 60s 70s onwards um so yes it 
does seem to be the case that within what we today call mainstream economics, there's been you know some some neglect of of inequality as a theme. If we look at economics more broadly, and if we look at economics within some of the major international institutions, uh, I think that if we go back at least prior to the 80s, there was a lot of concern with inequality. Another example would be um, the UN um, so-called social situation reports, which were published, I think the first in, in um, 48, 52, I can't remember, and, and onwards, also concerns with uh, inequality. And, and then if we kind of broaden the perspective, if you turn to sociology, if you turn to dependency theory, which has been a strong intellectual current in Latin America, but also in, in uh, Africa, but also to some degree in some uh, American universities, that has been very much concerned with inequality in the world. So I think there's, you know, there's much more to this story and that there's a, there's a big lively tradition out there uh, to some degree, perhaps also forgotten tradition of different people thinking about inequality, but, but thinking about it in different terms, using other terms. And I think we've kind of discovered that there's a whole kind of lexicon, if you will, of, of talking about inequality in the 20th century, where I would say that concept like uh, neo-colonialism, you know, that's an important concept. Um, the right to self-determination kind of brings us more in, 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 in the area of like political equality between nations, uh, which is also really important. So there's, uh, I think a lot of, of, of 20th century thought, which is deeply concerned with inequality within the world. Apart from identifying examples of people looking at inequality in places where scholars haven't focused so much before, Christian and his team have been looking at different intellectuals in different places at different times, with the aim to understand what kind of effects time and space has on the ideas produced about inequality. Uh, I think we found some really like a strong relationship between where people are located and how they think about international and global in economic inequality. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's not too surprising, um, but it's been really fascinating trying to, to figure out how, how that works. Um, I could, you know, give you some, some different empirical examples first, perhaps. And in empirical examples for me, you know, that's an example of, of a thinker, really, because that's kind of what our empirical material is. Um, so one example would be the Argentine development economist, Raul Prebisch. He's located in Argentina, uh, later in Chile. Uh, he's developing different ideas about center periphery, about dependency. Uh, he's you know, explaining why and how economic development is, is different in Latin America as compared to other parts of the world. And he's extremely concerned with figuring and you know, criticizing and, and pointing out that theories which are developed in the West uh, and in Western economics do not simply apply to the Latin American case. So from the, from 19, especially 1950, a bit earlier also, and onwards, 
you know, he's a really strong force in trying to think through that, you know, um, the world's economic political system is an unequal system. It has a long history. There's something at some point he calls peripheral capitalism, and it works in a different way than capitalism in the center. And, you know, the center and the periphery are interlinked. This is, you know, this is probably known to quite a few people who, you know, something about Prebisch, but I'm, you know, I've also been told that oftentimes we don't learn that much about um, the history of economic thought in, in economics departments, for example. So, so Prebisch is a really good example of, 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 of someone where, you know, the fact that he's, that he's from South America, it really influences the ways in which he's thinking about economic inequality in the world. Another good example from our many different studies would be, um, would take us to uh, Ghana. Uh, so the first president, Kwame um, Nkrumah, talks and writes about the concept of, of neo-colonialism in the late 50s onwards. Neo-colonialism is, is really a concept which is about inequality. It's, so it's about, you know, how you have a system which is not long anymore formally a colonial system. It's 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 but it's still it's it's unequal in politically and economically. And it, it it says something about the interrelationships between Africa and the rest of the world, especially the West. Uh, and there's you know lots of other different examples, whether we're talking about Gunnar Myrdal, uh, the Swedish um, development economists, uh, Walter Rockney, uh, or we're talking about Ghanaian women activists in the 1970s. In all of those different cases, I think it's it's very, very, um, very, very safe to say, you know, that where they're from, these different people, where they travel to, how they experience inequalities around the world, it really shapes the way they think. They find similar tendencies amongst contemporary scholars who they have recently interviewed, interviews which will be published in a book called Talking About Inequality. And it, it really shows, you know, from, uh, from, from that, I think, book, um, that the places people have lived, where they are brought up, um, that really means a lot for how they think about global inequalities in different ways whether you are talking um, with someone who's from Mauritius and uh, concerned with gender inequalities, concerned with um, global warming and its effects on Mauritius, or you talk to someone who's traced how uh, different forms of global capitalism has specific consequences in Indonesia, or you're talking to to anyone else of, of all these different people we've been talking to. And I think on one level, you could say it's a pretty banal point uh, to say that, of course, uh, it's, uh, you know, where people come from, where they live, the experiences they have is, is bound to influence uh, how they think. You could also say, like, theoretically, that it's, it's kind of unsurprising so I come from an intellectual uh, historical perspective. And, you know, what we've been doing for a very long time is to talk about context and how context matters for how people think. 
And some intellectual historians will then look at the uh, linguistic context, saying it's about how different texts um, relate to other texts and other debates. Um, that would be kind of the approach you find in someone like Quinton Skinner in the Cambridge School. Um, other intellectual historians like uh, Ellen Mikesons Wood would, you know, talk about social context. You need to take into account where a person is located in a society, what kind of social class that person belongs to. And I think what we've tried to do is, is, is kind of push that context concept a little bit further and try to say, what if people start thinking about how um, what what's the kind of international or global context for their countries? So this could mean, for example, what if I'm told now living in the 1960s or 70s, what if all of a sudden I can read, let's say, UN global statistics, which are showing that my country is much more poor than other countries, now that kind of knowledge, you know, informs my perceptions of, of an unequal world in, in different ways. So thus far, we've debunked the idea that inequality only became a priority for scholars with the Occupy movement at the beginning of the 21st century. We're now going to talk about how inequality has been measured in various times and spaces. Ultimately, it will further give answers as to why the Occupy movement was so successful in making inequality a priority, again. We'll see how measurement also changes over time and in turn who mobilizes it and to what extent it spreads. We're going to hear from Pedro, Dan and Nima again who have spent many years looking at the history of various measurements of inequality. A lot of these techniques were there, you know, you have Tony Atkinson, Marty Sen, Serge Christoph Kolm are, are developing techniques for measuring and, and, and charting and comparing inequality from the 1970s. Why does it take 40 years for them to be, to be really taken up? Um, but I think one of the interesting aspects there as well is why, is why are social movements, why are political movements using the language of economics? Um, what, does that speak to a kind of, um, if you want, infiltration or spread of a particular kind of language and the legitimacy of the language of numbers in political discourse. That means that social and political movements that have long been talking about social justice are only getting uh, attention when they're able to frame it in a particular way with the legitimacy of a renowned economist, be it Stiglitz or Piketty, you creating the numbers that they, to which they can join the kind of, if you will, the semantic content, the, the normative element of an argument about injustice. I think that's very interesting to see, you know, would they've had the same kind of hearing had they framed this exactly the same question about injustice, but without that slogan of the 99 versus 1%, to which David Graeber claimed to, have, to be the inventor of, although I'm not entirely sure. So there's something about counting things then that makes narratives about inequality spread more widely. But before we jump into examples of how inequality have been measured in the last half, half a century or so, I want to explain a bit about how Dan Hirschman analyzes these kinds of measurements. 
Dan, as mentioned, is a sociologist, and he's particularly interested in economic measurement, um, things like GDP and GNP, and then more recently things like um, the racial wealth gap and the wage gap as different ways of measuring inequalities. So the first question I had for Dan was how the idea of knowledge infrastructures helped him understand how inequality was and is understood and explained. The concept I picked up from the science studies literature, um, from the work of people like Paul Edwards, who in turn is driving driving some ideas from people like Boker and Starr, who are these scholars interested in sort of how science gets done and focusing not just on the individual scientists, but on really the kind of like the tools and equipment that they they build and merge together to make kind of larger things visible. So in Paul Edwards' work, uh, he's really interested in climate change and the history of climate data. And so the question is like, how do we know global average temperature 150 years ago, right? What do you have to bring together to make that possible? And he, you know, in his, his great book of Ask Machine, he looks at all sorts of infrastructure, like um, literally like ship's logs, from back in the 19th century and how they kind of merged data on like the, the temperature of sea, you know, of the, of the sea in 1860 from different ships, you know, uh, with satellite measurements from 2010, right? And bringing all those things together um, with different understandings of the data and, and the process trying to model and all this uh, is what makes it possible to observe something like global average temperature over a long period of time um, or, or ice core data or whatever. And so uh, the concept of knowledge infrastructures uh, is trying to build out from studies like that one um, a sort of more general understanding of how different uh, sciences or, or knowledge producing practices, whatever you want to call them, economics is kind of in this gray area always, uh, social sciences, uh, how they do their work of observing the world and kind of making sense of it. Um, and, and in particular, how they do that, how they sort of institutionalize that in things. Um, so knowledge infrastructures aren't just sets of ideas, um, though they often have ideas embedded in them, but they're really like quite concrete practices and and things like you know hard drives and punch cards and survey forms and you know, but also things like standards and practices, like the right way to ask a question about whether you're employed this month, right? These are things that are developed over time. They often get kind of institutionalized and um, are enduring and make it possible to sort of observe the same thing over time. Um, and in so doing, like they make a lot of things visible that otherwise would be sort of very hard to know. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, go back to 1920, uh, there are no household surveys yet, really. People haven't really quite figured out how to do the kind of randomized sample household survey we all come to know and love that sort of becomes widespread in the 40s and 50s. And so um, economists of the time kind of know that the economy is not doing that well in the United States. They know there's some kind of post-World War I recession, but they don't really know how many people are employed. So they bring together a bunch of people for this conference on unemployment and they have a vote that between three and five million people are unemployed, right? Because they just don't know. Um, they don't have an infrastructure capable of seeing it. And to build that infrastructure, they make a bunch of choices about how to measure things, how to define things, and also come up with a bunch of techniques like household sampling um, to actually make that visible. And so I'm really interested in sort of the histories of these infrastructures um, and the choices that are made when they're created, and then how they do or don't change over time. And then in turn, how that shapes um, what later researchers do or don't study or do or don't see or do or don't think is interesting. I got into studying uh, all this kind of stuff because really interested in the history of growth and debates over economic growth and the size of the economy and these kinds of questions and GDP. And there's this massive literature that's critical of GDP. Um, and it kind of assumes that if we measured growth differently, all sorts of things would change, right? We'd be more environmentally conscious. We'd prioritize unpaid labor more and so on. And, and like, I kind of want to believe 
but I also don't know how you would show it. And I don't know that there's strong evidence for that, right? That it's easy to put a lot of weight onto these metrics. And I think we can find certain moments and certain times when the metrics have kind of a very technical use and it clearly matters how they're measured. Um, so for example, I think it's fascinating the way that GDP gets uh, brought into the criteria for membership in the EU, right? Like that to the GDP ratio, right? And there, like how they're choosing to include or exclude, say, a particular entity as part of the government in Greece, right? Clearly matters, like in kind of a technical sense. And so if you measure things differently, okay, clearly, yes, you do or do not meet these criteria. But outside of those kind of narrow contexts where there's kind of a, a technical usage, like the way the poverty line is defined, leading to program eligibility or something like that, um, these kind of more diffuse kind of public sentiment-y kind of outcomes. Like there's clearly something there, right? Like something happens in 2010 with Occupy Wall Street and, and the kind of the rise of the narrative of the 1% um, where there's, there's some resonance. Um, could that resonance have happened 30 years earlier? Would it have mattered? Like it's really hard to say. Yeah, and I mean, I mean may, maybe some of the answer lies in kind of the, the way we count the world reflects how we think about the world. And then because we count it that way, the world becomes more that way. So it's perhaps more of a kind of a circle, virtuous or vicious, depending on what we, how we judge it. Yeah, I think those those cases certainly happen, um, and certainly you see you see bits of that. But I also think that sometimes things happen that we, we miss because we're not counting them. That's what I guess those are the cases I'm most interested in. Um, but I think you do also see cases where, uh, right, we're trying to count something made visible does sort of change politics more directly. So. Another case I'm working on right now is the racial wealth gap, which really kind of um, was also ignored for a long time just because wealth data in general, they're kind of messy and most social scientists kind of ignored them for you know, most of the 20th century. Um, there's, there's quite a scarcity of research on wealth and of theorizing around wealth, really. Um, not none, but just much, much less than income. And a group of economists and sociologists in the 2000s really pushed the racial wealth gap intentionally as a narrative to bring up conversations around, say, reparations or other kinds of, uh, of such a much more um, robust racial inequality kinds of programs, because they believe that that focus on wealth would really undermine arguments that it was about sort of skills or technology or education or aspirations or something like that, and really refocus on the history, historical legacies of, of slavery and discrimination. And, and, and there it seems to have worked. And we haven't gotten robust policies yet, but we've gotten bits of them and seen, you know, baby bonds are being discussed and, and sort of, you know, by the administration trying to give money to black farmers in recognition of all the land that was stolen and these kinds of things. So I think um, there you see somewhat of a tighter link. Again, though, lots of other things change too, right? That number, they're pushing it and then Black Lives Matter happens and those two things at the same moment, right? And so I, I do think they're, um, they become kind of cultural resources that people can draw on. But then the question is like sort of who's drawing on them and why, right? And so, you know, the 1% number meets up with the financial crisis by Wall Street, and that kind of becomes a moment. If you push that same narrative in the 90s, was there any kind of political will to make a thing out of it? And I don't know. I don't know there would have been. As historians, we often find that, right? That lots of, lots of things happen. And for a lot of the time, there's, there's not necessarily a, a conscious reason as to why they're happening. I guess I, I was mostly thinking about what you discussed actually in your in your thesis quite a bit about the lack of um, unpaid labor in the GDP um, metric, which I, I'm just thinking about the fact that we don't seem that we don't see that as work. We're starting to see that as work, but and and in a way, I feel like the, the reason they didn't count it because they had actually a way they had 
figured out some way to count it, right? Um, yeah. And and as much as that, there's problematics with that counting it, of course. But there are problematics with counting anything. So why decide yeah. that that one thing, just because it's not reliable data, or whatever, we don't do it well? That's how we saw society, right? It was the the that unpaid labor was not considered labor. It was some other thing. And I'm I'm not an expert in this area, but I guess that. And I feel like because we don't count it, then. Right. that world becomes like that more concretely but i think i think there's yeah it, it's a really it's a messy case because like how do you read it on the one hand these economists are putting together these estimates they come up with three different ways of counting it and they all kind of agree in principle it should be counted but then they all leave it out and then because they leave it out other folks relying on their statistics either implicitly or quite explicitly are kind of endorsing that leaving it out and so even though i think someone like simon cousins for example really did think it was labor that should be counted in, in principle and others uh, sort of of his ilk. Um, they didn't do it in their official numbers and the numbers that get circulated widely. And then everyone else who's relying on those numbers, you know, ends up reinforcing that kind of understanding. And so, you know, again, feminist economists have put a lot of weight behind that exclusion. And, and I'm sure there's something to it, but like, you know, patriarchy is multifaceted, right? And so um, how much would, it, would we have been able to change by changing that one thing? It's really hard to know. Yeah. And I mean, there's a there's a similar example in, in the studies that I'm looking in the cases I'm looking at now in, in the global south or what's called the global south today um, about the informal sector and whether or not to include it. And, and there are lots of really interesting discussions. And you, some people say yes to it that you'd think would say no to it and, and vice versa. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Niba and Pedro have also found similar tendencies about how different things are left out in different moments in the special issue that they edited that historicized the measure of inequality published in the Hope Journal in 2020. So what is inequality? At different moments in history, it's been conceived of very, very differently. You know, so, sometimes we're talking about, um, you know, inequality in terms of political power. Sometimes we're talking about inequality of social statuses. Sometimes we're call, talking about unequal distribution of economic goods. And many times we're thinking about the overlaps between all of those. So what kind of measures we use um, really point us in the direction of setting priorities. Which forms of disparity are we interested in and why? Um, and so the measure itself helps us find a kind of framework, a focus, a language for interpreting which types of disparities matter and which ones we care about and which ones we're less concerned about. So measures are, um, are you know, policy tools in and of in, in their own right. And then when we start thinking about the history of these measurements of, you know, techniques of measuring changing social dynamics, what we start to see is that um, every single form, you know, of measurement that we have, whether it is, you know, so there are you know, various kinds of techniques that people use um, to think about social and economic inequality. Those measurements might be things like the Gini index, or, I mean, the Gini coefficient, um, the human development index, uh, gender pay gaps. There are different kinds of techniques used in different contexts to think about and to map um, disparity. And you know, there are earlier techniques from earlier times as well. And what we start to see when we look at history and changes over time is that all these techniques are grounded in particular social and political and cultural um, and scientific 
uh, moments. So that they all have, they bring with them a great deal of historical specificity. So looking at the history of where these measurements come from, where did the Gini coefficient come from, um, we start to see how earlier thinkers, how they prioritized different aspects of inequality, and not just how they tracked, say, disparity or unequal distribution, but how they really thought about inju the injustice of inequality. So, you know, what are their ideas about, you know, fairness and justice and which elements of our social life do they kind of prioritize? And so we start to kind of see where our social tools come from, what it means to deploy them, and also what they, what each kind of form of measurement prioritizes and what it leaves aside, what it gives less importance to. So sometimes we prioritize you know, social um, differences, and sometimes we leave aside social differences to look at, say, income or consumption or other forms of, say, material distribution. So what is being highlighted and what is being kind of sidelined or ignored? So, so to kind of finally wrap up, looking at the history of, of the measuring of inequality, we start to understand where our social scientific tools come from what alternative ways of thinking about disparity existed at earlier times. Um, and it makes us kind of self-reflexive or self-aware about what our tools expose and what they hide. One example, very simple one we could use is even in terms of economic disparities, we went from focusing on um, the distribution of income across factors of production, so labor share versus capital share, which is the way in which inequality was mostly measured in the post-war period to this much more individualized thinking about individual incomes on a scale on that we track with the Gini index or with the Lorentz curve. And those sort of speak to quite different ways of then acting upon if it's seen as a problem. Because if it's a question of distribution of factor shares, the issue is much more industrial policy. It's wages. It's thinking about the, the rewards of the majority of, 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 of labor. Once you move towards a much more individualized way of thinking about income and distribution, you have the kind of debates we now have about higher marginal rates of tax um, as, as the focus of policy interventions. It's not to say that one is more important than the other, but it's one example of how the choices of measurement also condition the, the choices of action. Um, but we could go even further back. And one of the things that, that Anima was highlighting about how this also reflects the, the emphasis on different choices and concerns. I was just thinking about what is the, the way in which inequality, what kinds of inequality are measured, particularly in the 19th century and what for? And I was thinking one of the dominant ways is, is actually um, using measurements that not only take for given the existence of races, but actually what is the inequalities that are being measured are uh, attempts to prove that races are unequal in capacity and justifying racial hierarchies. So within that you have phrenology or the origins of attempts to define and measure intelligence, um, all the way to um, you know, 
Perito's uh, pioneering work on wealth and income distribution, which is used as an aid to arguing about this, the, the supporting the idea of a natural elite to the extent that he claims to identify this sort of ratio of distribution of wealth and income that's a constant across most societies. So those kind of different uses of inequality and its measure to both reflect and support different ways of acting upon the world is very much behind what we, we wanted to do. In my work, what I started to realize is that, you know, to speak a little bit to what Pedro was saying early on, um, that there was an interest in, you know, by Indian planners and government officials in inequality in the kind of middle of the 20th century. So we didn't even have to wait until Amartya Sen and Tony Atkinson and others tried to raise, you know, more um, interest in inequality, that that was actually baked into the planning and development process in India from the time of independence onwards. And so what we start to see is that the concern was not simply with development in some you know general sense with poverty of just those at the bottom of the social spectrum or um, the idea that oh, the only thing that matters is you know per capita GDP growth that we care about averages that Indian planners very much cared about distribution and really said very explicitly so my work focuses on PC Mahalanobis who was the um, architect of the second five-year plan in 1955 and in the kind of um, draft framework of that plan, he says very explicitly that in order for planning to be effective, we have to produce growth in the Indian economy, but we also have to redistribute the goods of the economy today. And we have to make sure that the economy is growing not just for those at the top, but really for those at the bottom and in the middle. Um, and so that is really interesting to see how important those objectives were from the very start. That said, he and others really emphasized um, consumption as the central concern of what it is that development should bring to Indian citizens after India's independence. And that has profound consequences. So, you know, what where, um, you know, where do they place their emphasis? What is it that they want to distribute? And what they want to distribute is literally the stuff of the economy. So much of the data for planning, as well as the objectives for planning, focused on, I mean, they focused on many things. They focused on health and education to some extent. They focused on, you know, um, labor market participation of women. You know, there were lots of different bits of information that was were collected in early surveys and samples to try and, you know, feed into the development process. But the most important um, elements were really about trying to track household consumption. So planners were very interested in incredibly mundane um, bits of data, like how, you know, um, how much grain were families consuming? What kinds of grains were they consuming? Did they have, um, you, know, sh you know, shoes and new clothes every year? Were they able to buy school textbooks? These are the kinds of things that, you know, planners were really concerned with. And the consequences for this are really twofold. One is that it overemphasizes um, consumption over other forms of, um, you know, other things that the economy can bring, right? So the economy can bring opportunity, can bring employment, it can bring changes in social status, it can bring you know, upward mobility, and the emphasis really is on stuff. And in the 
idea that you know stuff really matters, what they start to do is really focus on food and food grains and um, the idea that if more households are able to consume rice and wheat as opposed to other kinds of grains, then really the you know development is underway and you know planning is succeeding. And so actually this has it's it's a very kind of you know minute point to make, but it has profound consequences on how the Indian welfare state really focuses on rationing these kinds of commodities. Um, so that is something that the state even now really you know says, as it kind of holds out as something that, that it delivers in its welfare state is, you know, these kind of rationed goods, but also it shifts agricultural um, production towards rice and wheat, which are very um, intensive crops and away from more rain-fed agriculture. It has profound consequences in terms of the political economy of, um, you know, uh, of, of the agrarian countryside in, in India. Um, and the other thing that this focus on economic consumption really does is that it sidelines for a very long time other forms of inequality, um, including inequalities that are about, you know, um, the hierarchies of race, religious community, and gender. And in fact, planners in the 1950s and 1960s firmly believed that if economic development happened and if people's um, standards of living improved, that the conflicts around race, caste, and gender um, on, you know, conflicts of, in terms of um, religious sectarianism, that these would all kind of, you know, fall away. But what they didn't see was that these are overlapping forms of structural exclusion. And it was only, you know, very late and still, you know, a very much a kind of difficult work in progress to understand the ways in which these kinds of status inequalities reinforce um, economic inequality. And so that has not been up until recently, and it's only recently that these have become much more central to thinking about inequality um, at the level of, say, technocrats and planners and um, experts. Yeah, I mean, that there's a parallel there with this idea that you mentioned earlier about how we thought growth would just decrease poverty um, and, and inequality just automatically, because there's this trickle-down effect in a way. What Mimo is looking at in India, I think in, in Mutatis Mutandis has a parallel in, in post-war Europe. Um, you can see someone, it's now quite a book a few years old, Victoria de Gracia's Irresistible Empire, where she makes this argument about the trade-off. What's being given to, uh, to Europeans in the post-war is this affluent through, affluence through consumption and the equality of the consumer Equal, equal opportunity to consume, but perhaps in return for an attempt to reestablish a more hierarchical class society where poverty is, is the objective, it's solved through material consumption, which also has the advantage through a Keynesian lens of propping up demand and creating the demand that's going to generate the employment and the growth and the productivity growth. And but it also, which is focused on, on these indices of consumption, of unequal consumption, or, or, or the, the, the reduction of inequalities in access to things from toilets, to fridges, to cars, to TVs, to consumption goods, but it's not so focused. And it is focused on income inequalities to the extent there's taxation of, of unproductive capital, et cetera. 
but it's not so concerned and it's not measuring and is not interested in inequalities of gender, in inequalities of voice and political participation. And I think one of the interesting things we can do with that is think about the, the 1960s and 1970s counter movements that critique this post-war establishment as movements that are reinscribing different understandings of equality or a critique of different kinds of inequality of political hierarchies of gender inequalities with the second wave feminist movement of the emergence of um, you know, civil rights movement in the US, but also movements of migrants and ethnic minorities in Europe, sort of reopening all these questions about the distribution of all other kinds of things, which also makes us look at this supposed golden age of equality of the post-war period, perhaps in slightly different ways. Indeed, if we look more closely, we find more nuances and complexities. And that is exactly what Keith Tribe, an historian of economics, for. I've seen how economist is, I, you know, I sat through seminar after seminar after seminar uh, of economists um, using uh, all kinds of um, uh, bits of data to, to, to move across to something else. And so um, one of the things I've been working on in terms of the 18th century is to say, well, no, what we need is to, is to gather the data, disaggregated data that we have because this is the way that those people thought about, that this is what they saw of what was going on. And this is, um, this is how we can understand why they would start make, make the arguments they did, and then by extension, make the decisions they did about legislation, and in particular about the poor laws, for example. Um, which is a very interesting case in Britain. There's work that's been done more, more recently. Um, but the, the, so, but this requires disaggregated data. So um, you, you can, what, it, what economic historians would do would be to try to smooth and aggregate data, which completely denatures it, you know, so that, that by the time you get, I mean, it's quite interesting if you look at the, the very big collection of UK official statistics, historical statistics, Mitchell. And when you start looking at the sources from which the tables are are drawn up. You find that he's homogenized, or well, not him, but I mean the, the data has been homogenized in such a way that a lot of the interesting material just disappears. So it's all about index number stuff and so forth, but but actually the data on which that relies uh, goes missing. Um, and so my 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 gut reaction always is is that well that this this macroeconomics, this macroeconomic approach cannot grapple with the institutions of inequality and its, and its reproduction. The production and reproduction of inequality is, is not a macroeconomic problem. It can only be an, analyzed as a microeconomic issue, which is, you know, makes the big problem much bigger, but actually show, gives you some hope of actually doing something about it. Um, and so, for example, uh, an odd point in, in Britain to housing and childcare um, and, and having a better understanding of um, how you go about um, fixing this problem. Um, that uh, I mean, it's not just simply, you know, having budgets for this and budgets for that and, and looking at the, the, the overall uh, scale of things.
going to Phelps Brown, um, what's interesting about his work on inequality is, is his sort of dedication to the subject. And in one of his volumes, um, he, I mean, although he, he's an economist working on, uh, on, on sort of data and all the rest of it, and he's looking at different countries, in one of his one of his books, he has a photograph of of um, more or less the same school, uh, a, a number of uh, sort of a class of kids aged about ten or eleven, um, from about eighteen nineties or something, and then the nineteen twenties, and they're completely different. The eighteen nineties lot are kind of ragged and all you know, whereas the nineteen twenties lot all have proper clothes and shoes. Um, and what's interesting about Phelps Brown is somehow that he manages to keep in, in his head both this graphic idea of the institutional differences and how things change um, and the bigger picture. And the thing that I always think about, <laughs> the thing I always think about um, in this uh, is sort of a little story related to this as well. Um, was that um, um, in the Second World War, uh, when uh, uh, the uh, uh, when the uh, well, it's, it was the Poles and the 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 Eng and the British were fighting in Arnhem in on the on the Dutch border. Um, at one phase, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a narrative as a as a history of this by Martin Middlebrook, who did a lot of these kinds of accounts based on interviews with people. And there one soldier who came from Leeds was um, on, engaged in house-to-house -house fighting, going from one house to house in a, in a worker's area of Arnhem. And he was amazed that they all had indoor toilets. You know, all of them had indoor toilets. In a sense, you could, you, you could actually do a study of inequality, international study of inequality, just in terms of nutrition and height. I mean, there is a, there is a tradition of, uh, of, of, of economic historical material on, on mm. height data and nutrition. Uh, and it's that sort, you need that sort of imaginative leap to, to, you, to find a sort of data which is going to reveal something which is is it, you didn't expect, well, not you didn't expect, but which in a sense is standardized. I mean, there's mm -hmm. lots of genetic stuff involved, but I mean, it's to do with the same population um, yeah. over uh, through, through, yeah. through time. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, in my, I, and I, 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 in my own account of, uh, of the, the work done by Roundtree in, in York, I mean, in, in, among other things, um, his work has covered the period about the Boer War, the early 1900s in, in Britain. Uh, and it, everyone always says, oh, yes, it's the, um, um, the during the Boer War, the, the state of the, of the, um, of, of, of recruits or people who volunteered, actually, because it wasn't a conscription at all. So the people who volunteered, who theoretically should be fitter than the average young male, um, their condition was so poor that, that, uh, that you know, half of them were rejects. And, but what, um, but what uh, Roundtree does is he actually gives you what the minimum standard was. And the minimum standard was just bizarre. It was kind of, you know, people, the minimum size was what would be, I don't know, just over um, uh, probably about one meter. I, I'm trying to translate it back into it, it in English. It's uh, in, in the imperial measurements, it's 
uh, it's about uh, five, just about five foot um, with with a with a chest size which you'd expect these days uh, a 12 year old at least to have mm. you know and and it's just so graphic so mm. such a physical graphic sense of of the differences between between populations of, of in the same country So to understand inequality better, we need to get down to basics, such as what people are eating, wearing, and if they have access to a private toilet. In the second part of this series on inequality, we will see studies in economic history that take that more micro-level approach in particular times and spaces to better understand why inequality exists, persists, or declines in those moments. We shall hear more from Keith, as well as two economic historians, Pat Hudson, Keith's co-editor, and Eric Bankson. The voices at the beginning from the Occupy movement featured the activist Tina Rothery and the Governor of England from 2003 to 2013, Mervyn King, both taken from a BBC Select video. And the chant, We Are the 99%, was also taken from YouTube. To check out these videos and links to the various works mentioned on this episode, see our website. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.